Welcome, everybody, and I'm pleased to welcome you back to another Rail Talk with Shoesmiths. I am Michelle Craven Faulkner, and I'm the national lead for rail here at Shoesmiths, as well as being a partner in our commercial team. And I'm delighted today uh, to be sat here with a friend of mine, Chris Swan, who is the head of rail for UK and Europe at Tarmac. Hi, how are you doing, Chris? Thanks, Michelle. Yeah, I'm good, thank you. And uh, thank you very much for the invite to come down and talk today. Not a problem at all. So then, should we start off, Chris, with you uh, giving us a little bit of background in, in kind of true Silla style, you know, what's your name and where are you from? Thank you. So I joined EWS as a graduate in 2005, so uh, not quite, but nearly 20 years in the industry. Almost a railway man. Yeah, almost a railwayman, ready for that badge to arrive in the post nearly. Um so yes, I joined, uh, did, did various operational general management type roles in, in, in that business and you know, really embraced the challenge, I think, of, of, of running a rail freight business. Well, not running it, but, but being certainly a big big part of that from an operational perspective um, and, and learned an awful lot and then uh, left the business to join what was then the newly formed uh, Lafarge Tarmac organisation. That, that was a merger um, of, of those two UK businesses. Uh, initially to look at rail strategy um, and they were then bought three years later by by CRH who are our current pirate company big building materials supplier they've known Tarmac ever since uh, my role sort of unofficially for a few years um, including COVID actually covered covered Europe so although I've, I've had a, the, the whole of the UK in my brief uh, since since the business was formed um, I've had kind of Europe in the unofficially for for a few years, and then and then since September, um, it's kind of officially become uh, the the strategy and and looking at how we can use the railway to to further the business in our other European businesses is is uh, now formally part of my job. Fantastic. Now we both sit on the board for the Rail Forum, but you also hold the position of being the chair of the Rail Freight Group as well, don't you? Yes, I do. Yes, since uh, since November, um, you know, I, I've really enjoyed being on the board of both organizations i think um, in a slightly different way they both um are able to push the cause of the railway industry and, and and from my own personal passion perspective the rail freight industry really well and and yes um you know coming coming up for six months now i've been been chair of the rfg which is um a tremendously privileged position i think you know maggie does a a great job of, of running that organization and furthering the the cause of rail freight and uh you know whatever i'm able to do in that role to, to kind of help her is is really good. She does, and Maggie's already agreed to do one of these podcasts with me, so she will. Yeah, she she'll be along at some point soon. So obviously, Tarmac use freight both in relation to road and rail. You're looking after the rail side of things. How how is it determined what to use? What what's the balance between the two? How's it all figured out? I think that's a really important question, and I think for people who are not kind of in the nuts and bolts of this, a really important one to understand. So. The reality is, is that these have to exist together, mm-hmm. and the majority of our customers, not all, some some of our trains go directly into our customer yeah. sites, but most of our customers receive uh, asphalt, red and weeks, concrete, aggregates, you know, cement, whatever they're taking, that they, they receive the final journey on the truck. That, and that's unavoidable. Yeah. So, so I think the point about you know sometimes the the, the, the discussion about rail or road somewhat misses the point I, I think the reality is is that this is a a business decision and a business model so we're, we're recording this podcast in Birmingham so, so a good example of what we mean is um our new facility down the road in Washwood Heath where we've built um in in the center of the city a rail connected and uh, 
sites that could take big trains of 1,800 tonnes at once, who is going to receive trains from the big districts and from, from Mount Sorrel in Leicestershire, and we can make you know asphalt, ready-mixed concrete, um, or, or send aggregates um, to our customers. So the idea really is that we build a, a rail connecting facility in the middle of a, a city uh, or, or other urban area, let the train do the hard work in terms of the, 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 the yeah. raw materials, if you like, that come into the site, and then the final journey to our customer is is done by by road. Um, so, so I think that model, whether it be uh, whichever major city, as I said, Birmingham was perhaps one we were a little bit behind because we were bringing mm. everything in by road. Yeah. But actually, if if you look at you know Manchester, London, Leeds, you know we've got a lot of sites where we mm. build rail facilities there. Mm. Um, so so the the model is very much that. And of course, there are sometimes decisions where you know we 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 might have to put things on truck that we wouldn't like to actually. You know, for instance, when there is disruption on the railways for whatever reason. But, but as a general rule, mm. it's about building the model that allows us to take full advantage of the railway. Well, firstly, thrilled to see that Washwood Heath is being repurposed, as that's where I that's where I started my career many many moons ago, back in 1999. Um, I'd be interested to see if you've kept on the house on the hill, but that's a conversation for another time. And- Welcome to come and have a look. <laughs> I mean, it was also actually, unfortunately, the location when I was a, a young manager of the first uh, signal past at Danger I ever attended as well. So cry of history there as well, in not quite such a good way. But... <laughs> um, so so it's very much, by the sounds of it, it's very much multimodal, isn't it? It's, it it's, is. You know, you might be taking something from wherever it's coming from, and this goes for freight across across you know, across the land, doesn't it? No matter what, what it is that's being moved, whether it's by tarmac, you know, or whether it's somebody else that's using rail, is that it might have been flown in, it might arrive at a port, it then goes by rail, and then it will, in most cases, will finish the rest of its journey by lorry. Yeah. Because that's just the nature of, of the beast. And I suppose the difficulty will always be, as you say, having those sites that have got rail access because they are a bit like hen's teeth aren't they it's um they don't tend to hang around for too long when they're they go up for sale do they they don't but i think that's a really important point so so whether we're talking about moving aggregates bulk materials or, or even consumer goods i think that the point that the, the railway works best um when people involved in it realize that the part of the supply chain mm-hmm. we are yeah you know, whether it's um you know the part that we that we play in you know resurfacing somebody's driveway or mm. building a school car park or um or, you know the, the the reality of 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 what we're trying to do is that we're a part of that yeah. and the railway bit doesn't exist in isolation we're mm. about actually putting our goods into our customers businesses mm-hmm. and, and then that is true of you know people are putting you know kind of ipads in offices or, or whatever you know the, yeah. many of the ports to, to, to consumer goods and industries are in the same uh, are in the same point I think the terminal point is 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 crucial as well, Michelle. Actually, because um, there there is a lot of focus, and in some ways, quite rightly, on the mainline network. But but actually, when you look at the number of industrial facilities that exist alongside the railway, and um, the the cost and timescale of them getting their goods, either either at the moment through having to send. You know the the the, the goods from from that factory mm-hmm. or from that industrial facility to a different place uh, makes rail very difficult. Yeah. Or actually, the process of trying to uh, put a connection onto the main line is 
it's unbelievably challenging from the cost and, and a time scale point of view. And that is an enormous barrier to entry and, and, and to growth for the rail freight sector. Definitely. And I've, I've worked for many clients over the years who aren't in the rail sector, but do have the benefit of rail access from their site. And and as you say, trying to do anything with that access, trying to extend it, trying to change it, trying to, you know, we all know on the regulatory side how difficult it is. that is. But still, when they look to sell those sites, they, they just go. So, I mean, that would suggest that people do want to use rail as their means of moving around freight. Um, but there aren't as many, there aren't as many routes to that that people would perhaps like. And, and I mean, you know, we, you, you touched on the fact that there's been some disruption to the railway recently. Inevitably, that's going to have had an impact on things as well in terms of moving freight around. I, I think so. I mean, the, it's quite interesting that you, you know, I, I've been in this role, this is my 10th year, and speaking publicly, um, the, the mood has very much changed, I think, among many businesses where demand for having to use the railway is probably at an all-time high. You know, the, the kind of conceptual yeah. uh, processes within businesses who, who are thinking of using rail in a way that they didn't before, mm -hmm. I don't think has ever been higher, which is great. And, Absolutely. you know, as someone who's long advocated that, that that's, that's really, really thrilling to see. Um, but actually now comes the hard bit. You're right, that, that um, you know, can I get my goods reliably on and off a train within my terminal? Are there terminals available? Mm -hmm. And then what's the resilience of the actual service become the hard bits, mm -hmm. actually? Um, and I think, you know, clearly, you know, in t even internally within big businesses, you have to take some of your role selling the, the fact that we want to continue to do more by rails, have more rail sites and the benefits of it. And, and actually, even within a, a business, you know, look, I've had great support in the time I've been in Tarmac and, and, and we've built a network that we're very proud of and, and that when it works, works really well. Mm -hmm. But but I can't pretend that the next six to last, sorry, the last six to nine months have not been um, very challenging internally mm -hmm. because stuff that we've taken for granted and, you know, we've, we've built a business around being rail uh led supply chain to our customers and and when we're talking about you know obviously the strikes the the, the overtime bans and um, you know in some cases kind of unreliable bits of railway infrastructure like tunnels that flood it feels like mm -hmm. every time it rains yeah. um you know it, it is and, and sometimes you know we have great relationships with our with our private sector rail suppliers but mm -hmm. you know they're not always perfect either and, mm -hmm. and the reality is is um you know, we've chosen to to put a lot of that in rails basket because mm -hmm. we think that's the right place for it to yep. be. But but the conversations are very uncomfortable internally when it doesn't work. I mean, it's interesting, isn't it? Because when you look over the last goodness three years, it is now since COVID yeah. properly took hold in here in the UK. It's been challenging across the railway and every front hasn't it? Because obviously, I'm, you know, I'm assuming that during COVID, whilst you might have been able to access the network to deliver stuff, there perhaps wasn't much stuff needed to be delivered. Or is, is that just kind of a misconception? Well, I, th I think the first three months, so that kind of second quarter of 2020, that was very much the case when, mm -hmm. you know, everything was shut, including kind of famously the construction site. Yeah. And um, I think that we came back very quickly, and what tends to happen within our business is that the rail, 
the, the rail connected businesses within our business led the charge in a way because they tend to be the big sites, the big quarries, the big cement plants, the big sites in the middle of the key urban areas. Mm. So actually, as we turned on after um, the initial um, lockdown, it was interesting that the rail numbers, certainly from a tarmac, and I think from a wider construction perspective, recovered significantly quicker than even the rest of our business, and, and, and then the freight sector recovered quicker than the uh, than the other bits. Mm-hmm. And, and actually, if anything, COVID was obviously a dreadful time for, for, for many people, but probably, um, I think, focused... That, that focused many minds on the on what rail freight does, not not just from a construction sector. You know, mm-hmm. that the a full supermarket is something that we take for granted at seven o'clock every morning when it opens, but actually is something of a logistics marvel in my view. Yeah, you have to okay. consider all the products from all over the world that are all there every day. Mm-hmm. Not just the the kind of consumables, but you know, there's TVs in there now and whatever, and you actually. If you work back the supply chain of that supermarket in every town and, and, and city being full at seven o'clock in the morning when it opens, actually that's quite an impressive process that people take for granted. Uh, and maybe COVID brought some of that into into kind of full bearing. And the railways are an important part of that. And, and maybe it wasn't, we didn't talk about it as enough as we perhaps should have done. No, I've never really thought about it from the supermarket analogy actually before. It 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 is. It's it's a, a marvel in that respect, isn't it? And yeah. it's, Kind of thinking about the, how stuff gets around. I mean, there's there's been the focus over recent years, hasn't there, about you know well, Amazon might start dropping things by drone into our back gardens. But you know, let's move away from that whizzy stuff for a time being. You know, there is a a freight rail network out there that has been moving our goods around yeah. overnight, largely, um, for forever. It yes. feels like, and it's it's a long established way of moving freight and i'm going to use this stat because i've used this stat in every single one of these podcasts so far i'm fairly sure i might even be able to sneak it into the one i'm recording this afternoon as well which is that you know a freight train takes 76 lorries off the road and and it does and that is um brilliant but actually that is both a tremendous opportunity for those of us who were trying to grow the freight network and mm. do roll by freight in terms of the the kind of sell both to sort of UK PLC, the power of the railway and internally. I guess the point I would also make though from my previous resilient point is every time you cancel a train because there's a points failure or because, you know, for whatever reason, somebody in our distribution team has to get 76 lorries. Because by definition, you've just left the stuff that you needed at point A there. Yes, of course. And, and you, you know, you can't just get the next one. It's not like a passenger cancellation where the next train's a bit busier. That seven six lorries, you've got somebody's got to go and find them, mm. and they weren't expecting to find them, and that is a big job for somebody else. So, so it's it's a it, it's a great start, but I think it, you need to think about it both ways. Yeah, absolutely. So, what are the challenges then at the moment? So, we've spoken about. You know, perhaps issues of unreliability and not not being able to guarantee at the moment. Although hopefully we're getting towards the end of of industrial action. Hopefully, yeah, um, we seem to be moving in the right direction there from from an outsider. Definitely. Um, what are the challenges that face freight at the moment? Yeah, I think looking beyond the slightly the, the sort of shorter term resilience piece, I mentioned earlier that I th- I think demand for moving more material by rail has, you know, changed in a big way among big companies. And that's really great. And I think that's 
partly as a result of of the freight operators doing a really good job of selling what they can do, and and, and I think partly because you know businesses have got science based climate carbon targets for, for yes. climate change, and 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 that is a massive opportunity um, for the rail sector to play its part. Mm-hmm. Um, there is no question that if you base your supply chain in a more meaningful way around the railway, you reduce the amount of carbon in your deliveries. Mm-hmm. That that at the moment is is yeah. is clear. I think my, my kind of slight caveat on that is I think that window is shorter than perhaps some people realise. I, I think that the I, I saw a stat and, I, and I'm not an engineer. I'm very much an operations person. <laughs> Show me what it does, not how it works. Um, but batteries are are doubling every two years. So, yes. so, the, so the improvement, yes. if you think about that from a battery point of view, it, in trucks, we've just taken our first uh, battery uh, concrete mixer. Actually, that's another one that's here in Birmingham. Oh, right. Um, okay. So, so the, uh, we, we are now sending one truck a day uh, to our customers with with batteries, uh, not not with diesel. Fantastic. That will that will change very quickly. Mm-hmm. And the what what we can't afford to do, I don't think, as a rail sector, is is assume we will have carbon as something that we can use to sell forever. I think right now, rail will sell to customers on on carbon, on service and on price. Mm-hmm. I, I think we've probably got 10 at best 15 years until that. We need to have built an infrastructure where where we will have to just compete on price and service. Mm-hmm. And, and I think that's really important. And so what does freight look like then in the future? Because because you're right, you know, the, the argument that we've got, whether it's passenger or freight at the moment, is the carbon benefits of travelling by train. But that isn't going to carry on forever. There is infrastructure that's needed to the roads far over and above what, what there is there now at the future. So there's some investment that's needed there. I mean, you would argue that there's investment needed everywhere, but what does freight look like then in the future? What is what is needed? Yeah, I think... So, so this is this is a really difficult question, and I'm always conscious that in answering things like that, what you don't want to say is, here is a list of things that the government need to do, because actually the answers are as much in the private sector as they are in, in the government sector but but i think one of the you know we we as a customer of the rail freight industry will challenge our supply chain to reduce the carbon output of rail because i think that's important as well that this the the, the plan can't just be we're going to do more, more by rail that's part of the carbon reduction plan but it can't be the only thing we have to also look at ways that the the physical carbon output of the railway operation <clears throat> excuse me itself has to also reduce. Mm-hmm. Now, where I have tremendous sympathy with our train operators is they currently use diesel locomotives on all our floats. So Tarmac has over 50 sites around the UK where we run uh, trains. Mm-hmm. We run over 30 trains a day. At the moment, if we had an electric or bi-mode locomotive, we could run, run one train, which runs three times a week. That's it, one. Goodness me. So over 50 sites, 30 trains a day, there is one that we could run uh, with an electric loco. So just to put that into perspective. Wow. You know, we we can't... And actually, I thought what was very good, um, the CILT have uh, obviously put out a paper around electrification infill, which, mm-hmm. which includes the 
um, the Peak District. Um, I did joke with the author that they seem to have put the Peak District third on the list of priorities. So I, I think perhaps he uh, he's done it the wrong way around. But um, you know, in all seriousness, it's a great paper, and I think demonstrates, um, you know, the, the the real opportunity, whether it be port to inland terminal or you know helping the construction sector by by taking places like the, the Peak District and the Mendips and, and, and making those electric tractions. But investment decisions in new locomotives are really hard and really hard for private businesses when they have no certainty around network they're going to be operating on. It has to start there. Of course. And I mean, that's the case. It's the same with passenger, the same it is with freight. I mean, electrification is that next step yeah. for rail as, as a whole, isn't it? Because, you know, we can say that, yes, it's more environmentally friendly at the moment, but to get that next step is that piece of electrification. That's been backed up by the Rail Partners paper as well, hasn't there as well, talking about what could be achieved yes. by freight if we had electrified freight lines. Yes, it does. And and I think I talked a lot about terminals earlier and I still think they they become key, but you're right. If you if you the the carbon reduction, the asset utilization, you know, a freight train is an expensive piece of kit and having better access to electric traction allows us mm -hmm. you know, more some basic operational stuff. You know, you get more loaded journeys a day out of your freight train yeah. um, on average if you have electric traction and it can go quicker and, you know, all the things that the performance benefits that electric traction brings as much as the mm -hmm. uh, the other thing, uh, the, uh, the, the carbon. So I think, yeah, electrification is crucial. I think as a rail sector, we need to get better from a credibility point of view at delivering electrification. I think that is, yes. you know, we can't pretend that that's not a problem. Um, but that said, that doesn't mean it's not the right answer. No, and I think that that's largely been due to cost yep. in the past, hasn't it? And and I think part of the problem there is the uncertainty in terms of how far it's going to go. It's that give us the certainty, exactly what you said about the investment in locos, give, give us the certainty that this whole line is going to be electrified and it's going to reduce price and it's you know it's going to have the knock-on effect everywhere else in, in a good way. I can remember a Secretary of State, goodness knows how many times ago, saying that what they were actually looking for for rail was an off-the-shelf electrification model, you know, where you could almost go and click and click into place an electrification model on, on the, the track, you know, overnight or every weekend. And unfortunately we haven't, haven't got there. That that's not to say it's not possible, but it it needs something there to spur on somebody to look at doing the innovation on that side of things, doesn't it? But um, um, perhaps a little bit of a, a difficult question for you now is obviously we've had, we're in a period of time with rail covering the network as a whole, whether it's passenger or whether it's freight, where there's a lot of announcements, there's a lot of announcements due, there's been a lot of announcements, there's some uncertainty over certain things. The HS2 announcement of, of the other week, the delay of two years, how does that impact the freight network? Because I think there's been so much focus still on HS2 being a way to get people to, to and from London faster, whereas actually that's not what it's about for many people. I mean, for me personally, it's about the cross-country side of things, you know, two and a half hours to get to Birmingham this morning by car or by train, um, being a case in point. And, but it's also about freight as well, isn't it, HS2? It's about freeing up some of the network to have more freight journeys, isn't it? So how how does the most recent HS2 announcement impact freight? 
I, I, I think it's a really it's a really interesting point, and I guess there's almost two angles I think Michelle to take it from the, the first of which is, um, you know, we and almost everybody else in our sector is uh, is helping build it, mm-hmm. and I think that came from nowhere from a you know we are part and a, quite a big part of the supply chain both in terms of the the building materials going into HS2, but also that the rail freight sector is um, is is doing a lot of the hard yards. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, we, we were due to have a celebratory event uh, a couple of Fridays ago to to to, um, to celebrate the the big role that rail freight has part in, is played in helping build HS2. Unfortunately, it was cancelled because of the snow. Uh, <laughs> hopefully, postponed rather than cancelled. But, but um, you know that that that's been a big factor and. The impact that the announcement will have on that is is a little bit unknown as well. Mm-hmm. Um, but but the actual release of freight capacity is clearly very important. Um, you know, I, I've talked talked a little bit about terminals, but but you know these are expensive assets, as I said in in the previous answer, and we are, we are still spending too long with too many freight train satting sidings. Mm-hmm. These the, the way to make rail freight more economically sustainable is that you continue to get more trips with your train sets and and, and that's just you know the reality whether you're running a, a railway company or, or a road logistics company the more loaded journeys you get with with your kit the more economically sustainable it is and we will both in terms of growth capacity and uh, and, and in terms of getting better use of your, your assets both need more mainline capacity and and so this is a way of of getting that and becomes a crucial part of getting that. So, um, you know, we, 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 the case for more mainline capacity is, is, is clear and has been made. Um, I think probably this is a personal view, but, but I think that mistake in terms of just focusing on the journey time from London to Birmingham was, was corrected. And mm-hmm. I think a lot of the ages two stuff that came out did focus on the freight capacity and riding. Yeah. So probably too late, but at least they realised that and, yeah. and made that point. So we're you know get getting on and getting that freight capacity released quickly. Mm-hmm. Calling becomes important. I don't know yet the detail of where the delay announcement versus how quickly that freight capacity gets released. I, I'm not sure. No, um, but the conceptual perspective, it it clearly isn't good if it's if it's delayed. And, but I mean, one thing that is positive at the moment is that uh, Great British Railways, the transition to in GBRTT, do seem to firmly have freight in their sight, don't they? There, there is that kind of recognition and acknowledgement that freight isn't, you know, the, the poor relation. It's it's one network. It's, yes. You know, we all need to use the network and we all need to have access to it. Yeah, I think that's really important. Um, and, and I think what I would say is that the freight elements of GBRTT was launched quickly. There was a good plan. Um, you know, w- whether that's been slightly sort of slowed down with the wider organisational stuff, I think mm-hmm. is, is an interesting debate. But, um, you know, the, the key parts of that plan around making sure there's enough capacity, driving traps business interests beyond traditional markets, which obviously isn't necessarily held time but I think it's the right thing to do, is is, is clearly something the GBRC is a, is a big part of their brief, which is mm-hmm. good. Um, the strategic freight unit hopefully will have a, 
a kind of voice which is equivalent to the regions, which I think is mm -hmm. important as well. You know, we, we, we don't want a freight world that is subservient because mm -hmm. that, that doesn't help. No, that's um, true. So, so, yes, I think so far um, a lot of the right noises are being made. However, you know, as ever with these things, we need to make sure we focus on the deliverables, you know, and not sort of get lost in endless debates about industry structure and, and, and all the other things that sort of as interested parties in the railway, I'm sure we all discuss, but are not very interesting versus actually just getting on and delivering things. No, no, it's that certainty again, isn't it? It's, it's you know, what is going to happen? When is it going to happen? And how is it going to happen? That's that's what we need a bit more of a focus of. And actually the time of recording, it may well be that we get some of those announcements this, this week, you know. <laughs> Everybody might be listening to this at a time when a lot of this is clear, but... You know, this this is the railway. Yes, indeed. Let's... Congratulations to Inser winning city. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. And any other announcements that may or may not come ah. out this week. I think what I'd like to do now is just a final question from me, really, which I think will kind of round this up quite nicely, is we focus very much um when we've chatted today, Chris, on the UK. Yeah. Obviously you have got Europe in your title as well. How do the two differ? We run operations in nine different countries, of which the UK is by far the biggest. Mm -hmm. um, from a, I'm talking from a rail perspective yeah. now, and that's within within Europe. We also have a big operation in America, but that that's not part of my brief. Um, it's interesting to see kind of some of the good things. So, mm -hmm. so the train, you know, in Poland, for instance, we're running trains that are over three thousand tons of capacity. Goodness. And um, in Switzerland, we have a wagon load network that allows you to. Uh, pick up a wagon at 1500 uh, on day A mm -hmm. and deliver it despite you know not having previously told the railway company and and have delivered it to your customer by nine o'clock on on the morning of day B. So we have we have some isolated example how that where the, the performance is exceptional and the infrastructure is there and exceptional. Um, however, there are kind of clear challenges. You know, some of our um, you know, utilization of kit is, is quite challenging. You know, we don't we don't turn trades around quickly enough in, in many countries. Um the speed with which we can change things is perhaps not as 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 quick as it should be. It feels like some of the regulations around vehicles are probably more stringently enforced here. Um so Yes. You know, that 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 kind of and that can be good and bad. You know, we have if you look at a freight wagon, you have Rough rule of thumb, an 80 ton maximum per vehicle in Eastern Europe. It's 90 tons in Western Europe and it's 101 tons in the UK. So that is great. Honestly. Um, but then actually, if the vehicle costs a lot more money because of, you know, lots of standards and things like that, then, you know, it's great that you've got 10 more tons in it. But, but where that sits on the cost scale is not always as simple as, as, as it perhaps could be. So, um, yeah, the, I think my role at the minute is about finding the good things that we do and trying to apply them in mm -hmm. different places. Okay. Um, I think it's easier to connect new terminals in different businesses economically in different countries. Different countries. Um, but that said, as, as I said, you know, the, the, the kind of turnaround of assets in the UK is is probably you know kind of Europe leading. So it it, it can be. Uh, it's about finding the good and the bad and what you can what you can kind of take to different places. It sounds like, and it's interesting about the standards, because obviously, you know, the, the DFT and others are working through the European regulations at the moment as, as a consequence of the Brexit Freedom yeah. Bill. And, and so inevitably there are things that are being looked at there. And I think everybody's 
concern is to make sure that we don't hold ourselves, carry on holding ourselves to that much higher standard than than perhaps others are elsewhere, because it does have the the effect of adding cost. And, and I, I mean, an observation would be that there are a lot of rules that still apply on a very country by country basis. Mm-hmm. You know, we have vehicles that we are operating in three or four European countries that we have to that we've spent a long time trying to sign off in a different one. Okay. Um, you know, the the idea that there is a kind of standard set of European rules uh, is that is, is not necessarily something I've seen be applied across the sector. Let me put it that way. Yeah, I'm I'm fairly sure there's lots of other sectors that would have the same. I'm, I'm sure. That, you. Yes, I mean, I'm sure there are. Um, but it's been quite interesting to perhaps see a, a perspective beyond our shores, the extent to which, uh, yeah, lo- local local governments have retained control in in much more of a way than perhaps is advertised. Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm obviously thinking about procurement rules, yeah. <laughs> which has always been, especially for our industry, has been something that's been flanked a lot. Yeah, it? indeed. <laughs> which is probably quite a nice point for us to draw an end. Yes, indeed. Today. So, Chris, thank you ever so much for, for coming along. Really interesting times for freight. Um, it really does feel like there are there are clear challenges ahead, but there's a real window of opportunity for freight to really grab hold of. And, and I've mentioned in some of these other podcasts, you know, it comes back to maybe we need like a, a rail marketing board to really go out there and shout from the rooftops the benefits of rail. Um, but hopefully we've given people a lot of food for thought today. Yeah, I hope so. And, and thank you for having me on. As I said, I think that that, that that opportunity is there, and 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 perhaps you know you you would expect me to say this, but it's perhaps more there than it's ever been, mm-hmm. and, and and that is that is in some way the exciting thing that for, for businesses that want to to supply the rail freight sector and and for UK PLC that the 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 opportunity to come with solutions probably is going to receive a um a receptive audience from businesses that want to use the railway more than they ever have, mm-hmm. which which I think is where some of the frustration comes in that, that, that you know that perhaps it needs to we need to go faster and we need to be slightly better, but but it comes from a place of you know let's take this opportunity while it's there because we you know, we it might the window might close in ten years and we don't want to have looked back and think oh, I wish we'd done a bit more you know let's let's go and do it now. Fabulous, brilliant. Thank you ever so much for that, Chris. It's Thanks, been a Michelle. pleasure. Okay, thank you. Bye. Thank you.